Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. We're speaking today on National Indigenous Peoples Day, and in particular, we're discussing a new report to Canada's federal government from a special interlocutor that it appointed just over a year ago to investigate possible claims of unmarked graves and burial sites stemming from the country's experience with Indian residential schools in the 19th and 20th centuries. The report has generated considerable attention and debate, most notably its recommendation that the government ought to consider legislation that would effectively criminalize what it calls, quote, residential school denialism, unquote. We'll discuss the report and its recommendations, the inherent challenges of criminalizing open discussion about the past, and the importance of addressing contemporary challenges standing in the way of progress for Indigenous peoples. David, thanks as always for joining me. Thank you so much. We should start with some context, particularly for non-Canadian listeners and viewers. Bear with me for a brief minute, David, as I set it up. Nearly two years ago, there was a discovery by way of ground-penetrating radar data of possible evidence of unmarked graves of as many as 215 students at a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. The finding was followed by similar cases elsewhere. The Canadian government, which apologized for residential schools in 2008 and paid out compensation to many of those who attended, soon provided funding and resources to investigate these claims. As part of that action, the government also appointed a leading Indigenous lawyer to serve as a special interlocutor on these issues. Up until now, the search for unmarked graves is not borne out, though it's possible that they're found at these sites or elsewhere at some point. In parallel, the special interlocutor has carried out a process of consultations and research to produce her interim report, which was released earlier this month. A final report is expected next year. Okay, let me pause there and, and come to you, David. The initial evidence of possible unmarked graves in 2021 rocked the country. The Canadian press called it the story of the year. The flag was flown at half-mast for more than five months. Canada Day celebrations were curtailed. What do you make of Canadians' reactions to these reports about unmarked graves? And what do you think it tells us about our collective commitment to reconciliation? Well, in the, in the summer where the, these events exploded, I interviewed one of the leading historians of the residential schools, J.R. Miller of the University of Saskatchewan, then just retired. And Miller had published a book in the 1990s at a time telling the story, which is, was, has been known for a long time. It's not a new story. And he, but he was the first to really document it, bring it to public attention, try to quantify it. There, there are missing records. I mean, not willfully missing, but the, the records have just were never centralized. They have not been properly consumed. He was the man who did, did the real work to bring this to national consciousness. And he told me, he could not get an article published in any Canadian newspaper, never mind the major papers, but even his own local paper in Regina saying, this is a terrible tragedy. Lives were lost. This is in no way a genocide. And this is in no way intentional. And it, 
I ended up not writing uh, a story based on this, but the thing that struck me was there, there was this explosion of feeling, but a, a remarkable lack of attention to knowledge. And the reason we're talking about this today is so much of what happened um, in those years remains uncertain and contested. There's much to talk about, but much of the discussion is, is leading, misleading, and sometimes I think quite willfully misleading. An example of the willfully misleading is the um, report in 2015 on uh, missing Indigenous women, which was written as if to suggest that there had been a campaign of murder by outsiders of Indigenous women, when, as what the RCMP testified, as the ministers of the Crown noted, that 70% of the cases involved in a, a, a fellow Indigenous offender, typically in the context of sexual or domestic violence between people who are either intimate partners or who are no previously known to each other. And that's no kind of excuse for this appalling violence, of course, but the report published in 2015 was willfully, I think, willfully misleading. So as emotions have cooled a little bit, as attempts to bring some science to bear, as, as you said, as it has been discovered that these disturbed grounds do not probably contain unmarked or mass graves, and that if the graves were unmarked, they were unmarked because, not because they were never marked in the first place, but because the markers fell apart over the passage of time. That this, that the newest things say, well, all as, as this unwelcome to some information comes forward, let us make it illegal to bring forward unwelcome to some information. And that is really alarming because Canada must face its past. Of course, as all countries must, but it also needs to face the, the fact that its past is not as dark not as naked as some would like that past or to represent that past as being. And that needs to be able to be said without state saying you can't refute statements that are either maybe untrue or misleading or even willfully misleading. I should say that the interlocutor's report contains useful information about some of the practical and legal challenges associated with investigating possible cases of unmarked graves or burial sites from res Indian residential schools. There are issues, for instance, with respect to records, as you say, technology, and even jurisdictional ambiguities, the government should consider many of its recommendations. But as you say, I, I think there is a, a lot of debate about the rec recommendation concerning so-called denialism. Why don't you just elaborate on, on what you see as the inherent problems uh, with criminalizing discussion about these issues? I don't think we can get past this threshold fact, which is there is a lot of money at stake here. And I don't think maybe, maybe all Canadians don't understand how much, because the way the federal government accounts for, they, they separate both current expenditure and then the vast sums that are being paid out in, in settlements. But the Fraser Institute put all of that together in a report that was published last year about the um, uh, in expenditure on indigenous causes and settlements in 2022. And basically, Canada is spending almost as much on all indigenous claims, or was in 2022, as it spent on national defense. So it's, uh, these are vast sums. The exploration of the disturbed grounds, that cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, and when that much money is at stake, and there's other monies at stake too, more indirectly, because uh, a lot of the national intense feeling about these issues has become a political resource to block, for example, the development of critical natural resource infrastructure, pipelines especially. And then the pipelines then pay out monies, not that are not registered in the public accounts, but that are in effect public expenditures because they're required by the public in order to get to give permission for these projects to go through. So tens of billions of dollars are at stake. And when you have that much money at stake, that the idea that you would say, well, 
we can't, uh, if, and if some of that money is being claimed on the basis of, of reports that are exaggerated or misleading or distorted, and, and to say that it is not, it's not a mere intellectual interest that would make you say, well, then we should suppress criticism. Because if the criticism comes forward, some of these payments may be disputed. The report claims that uh, denialists were seen trying to dig up unmarked graves at one of the possible sites in Kamloops. It, it's hard to know what, if anything, happened. It doesn't provide much detail. Uh, otherwise, the report's claims about denialism, which is imprecisely defined, more generally are anecdotal. Of course, I'm not saying there are people who diminish the conditions at residential schools or the consequences of the system, but it seems to me like increasingly a fringe position. What do you ex think explains the odd dichotomy between broad public acceptance of the negative consequences of, of residential schools and these growing claims about denialism? How can we reconcile these competing perspectives? Yeah, well, I, I, I did a little experiment before our gathering here just to, so to, to test how, for myself what happened. I, I retweeted a story that was um, unearthed by the Dorchester Review, a very interesting historical journal uh, from 2021, where one of these, one of the sites where there had been disturbed ground was investigated and no bodies were found. So without comment or editorial, I just, I just put this on Twitter, see what would happen. And what, what was very interesting what happened was that people got very angry that I was Leaking, and again, no editorial comment, leaking to this story. And then others would say, well, it doesn't matter that what the exact facts are. What matters is what the larger truth is. And so what I notice in a lot of the debates is there's a, there's a toggle between when you're talking to people who are not well-informed, maximal claims are made. And when confronted with adverse evidence that the maximal claims are not true, that there was no genocide, that, these, that the suffering that happened was the result of, you know, bureaucratic incompetence and underfunding and that the worst of it happened uh, before the lifetime of any living person and that uh, the, 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 the graves were, may, may have, the, the markings may have fallen down or disappeared, but the graves were not originally unmarked and they were not mass graves. There was not, uh, there was not murder behind them, which is what the mass graves was intended to suggest that comparisons to you know, the Soviet, when you, when you point those things out, people then, you know, retreat and say, well, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this terrible human tragedy that occurred in these, in these institutions. So that's, it's an example of why this discussion is so important because when it's not discussed, maximal, maximal claims are made that are false. And I think some people, or people would say, well, confronting those maximal claims, that's denialism. Anything that says what activists don't want to hear, anything that cast doubt on them is denialism and must be forbidden by the state. Well, the reason it must be forbidden by the state is not because it's some fringe point. It's because uh, it's powerful. That's why I want it forbidden by the state. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. It, it seems to me, David, that one of the regrettable developments of the unmarked graves issue is that it focuses discussion on the unknown and away from what we know. 
as I wrote last year for The Hub, it distracts from the, quote, incontrovertible and terrible facts about residential schools, including the roughly 31,000 former students who received extraordinary compensation because of their cases of mental, physical, and sexual abuse. In that sense, why are we debating about unmarked graves? Isn't what we know bad enough? Well, because we're not, when we talk about the past, we're talking about the present. So Canada has gone through a series of approaches to the oh. indigenous problem. And the earliest part of the residential schools failed experiment happened at a time at times when Canada was working very hard to make, to assimilate Indians into the nation of Canada. The John, that, this was John McDonald's idea that, that this population who had, had been hunters, whose game populations had disappeared, the buffalo had been, had disappeared from prairies and plains, try to make them farmers, try to teach them English or French, try to Christianize them. And then in the, in the 1950s and 60s, that there was an attempt to bestow citizenship on them to fold Indian nationhood into, into Canadian nationhood. I think certainly uh, the consensus in today's Canada is those approaches failed. They led to a lot of human suffering. They were maybe wrongly conceived to begin with. And so now there's a new approach. And the thing that we want to not ask is, how is the new approach doing? Um, the new approach is vast direct subsidies to Indian communities and indigenous communities, which are then created as semi-sovereignties, our suicide rates going down, our rates of sexual abuse and domestic violence going down, substance abuse going down. Are we producing more successful human outcomes? Um, and is, is there any way, is, is there any way to measure what we're doing now? And what will Canadians 50, 60, 80 years from now think about what we're doing now? And a lot of the, a lot of what we're do, seeing is an attempt to put all of those questions back in the box. It is, is, I mean, as I say, we're spending tens of billion, almost as much as, as on national defense, on various kinds of direct income support to communities or individuals. Is that producing better outcomes? And at least as my understanding, I'm not any kind of expert on this area. My understanding is um, not only are the outcomes bad, but the outcomes in Canada are worse than the outcomes in the United States. And that is something that Canadians need to think hard about. And a lot of this uproar has the effect of blinding Canadians to the consequences of what they are doing today. I would just say in parentheses, David, along the lines that you just outlined, as sometimes I'm concerned that activists and Indigenous organizations and other leading voices on, in these, on these issues prefer to focus on the historical and the symbolic rather than the concrete in the present, because the latter in, involves trade-offs. It, it, it re requires tough decisions. It may require, it may involve fissures within Indigenous communities themselves. Whereas if we're focused on abstractions or symbols, these organizations and these voices are free from the imposition of those trade-offs and challenges. In, in that vein, of course, we have to confront the past, but as you say, we can't let it define the present. How can we strike a better balance so we're not merely looking to the past, but we're also seizing on current opportunities and accentuating um, some of the, the challenges that, that you've outlined? I, I think we need fewer taboos. We need fewer taboos. And, and this discussion in Canada is very taboo-ridden. We, we also need to say that we need fewer fictions. And if we're going to, for example, one thing that, that you might want to do is integrate the telling of indigenous history into the Canadian story. Don't start the textbook when Europeans touch foot on Canadian soil. Start the textbook from, you know, the retreat of the glaciers and really integrate that. But that means if you're going to do that, that means 
you know, t- telling, for example, that indigenous um, groups had histories of conflict. So one of the things you will hear whenever you go to a Canadian event is they do these land acknowledgements that makes it seem as if all of these different groups were, you know, you know, it, 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 I say, so we are here in Strasbourg, the traditional lands of the French and the Germans and the, whole, and the Holy Roman Empire and the Romans. And the, these people were at war with one another and they did not accept each other's claims. The idea that the French and the Germans historically were the, this is historically shared a patrimony in Alsace obviates a lot of history. So tell that history, include it. And I, I've seen studies, I'm not sure how reliable these are. When you ask American college students, do they agree with the statement that before the Europeans, indigenous groups in North America generally lived in peace and harmony with one another, that they belong to the same human race that the rest of us do, that, that these kinds of myths are, are not serving anybody. So integrate. So then we need to ask questions. Is, is it good for people to earn their livings as, as perpetual dependence on state chair, sub, subsidies? Is that good for I mean, where you try that with non-Indigenous groups, do you get successful life outcomes? And if you don't, why do you think the, the, the outcome would be different? And so we need to be able to not hive off parts of the Canadian national experience. And at least that's how it seems to me. We published an essay this week by one of the Hub's best writers, Ginny Roth, on the case for some form of mandatory national service for young people. It galvanized strong feelings on both sides of the issue. But it made me wonder, David, if one of the challenges with Indigenous issues is that they're so distant from the so-called lived experiences of many Canadians, including those in cities and suburbs. Is that a problem in your view? And what, if anything, should we do about it? Well, there was a powerful essay, and, and it, I don't pretend to have a, a fixed view in response to it. It, made, it certainly did make me think. And, you know, just generally we see in modern societies a lot of it uncertainty and aimlessness among young people. A lot of people floundering around as they say, what should I do with my, with my life? That may, maybe this would, would help a lot of people. It would bring people more into contact with one another. It's got some, it's, 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 it's a rich topic for discussion. But what I would say is, is, is guilt is usually a poor guide to action. And guilt is an especially poor guide to action when it's based on facts that are not held up to true historical and scientific scrutiny. Let's wrap up by by looking forward. You know, notwithstanding some of the issues we've we've discussed today, there are some signs of progress. We, we have a, a great essay published today, June twenty first, by a regular contributor, Karen Rastoul, on evidence of what she describes as economic re- reconciliation occurring through partnerships with resource companies and other means by which communities are pursuing economic empowerment. What can policymakers do in your mind, David, to help make progress on those areas so that, as you say, we don't look back 50 or 60 or 80 years from now and, and find Indigenous people stuck in, in the same set of challenges that, that, they, that they did in previous generations? Well, look, this is one of the most intractable areas in Canadian public policy, and so many things have been tried and so many things have not worked. So I'm not going to stand on a soapbox and say, I have the answer. But what I am sure of is you have to be able to talk about it. And you have to be able to talk about the uncomfortable things, the uncomfortable things about Canadian history, but the un- uncomfortable results of present day Canadian public policy. And you cannot, and there, there is, I think, an attempt, I don't know how conscious it is, but to mobilize feeling, to suppress, oppress, and even sometimes intimidate the acknowledgement of realities that a lot of people know and, and that go increasingly unsaid. 
And it is a, a dangerous situation to create gaps between what people broadly know to be true and what people feel free to say, because they don't forget, they, they don't stop knowing what they know, but they do stop believing what they say. And they do stop listening to people who tell them things that, that are fictions. And, and these, this attempt to create a kind of a state ideology based on this idea of reconciliation, when at the same time, as you pursue policies that make people less reconciled one to one, to one to each other, that's not going to go anywhere, anywhere good. So I think the, propo the specific proposal to criminalize so-called denialism needs to be hooted down. Um, the attorney general should have said immediately, well, obviously we're not doing that. And, and then I think we should be turning to people like Professor Miller and saying, you know, you were there at the beginning. You should, you should, newspapers should publish what you have to say. It's important. And I'm not saying he's necessarily right, but it's important. And the idea that there are vast categories of knowledge that become unsayable, that's dangerous. Before we wrap up, David, if I may just, uh, on a personal note, observe that I grew up in Thunder Bay. There was a residential school at the end of my parents' block. My, one of my best friend's dads went there. Um, Charlie Baxter, who was the, the principal figure in the residential school class action, R versus Baxter, was represented by lawyers in Thunder Bay. So I've, I've seen and experienced the consequences of failed indigenous policy in Canada, including, of course, residential schools. And you know, if, if I could kind of make one plea to, to listeners and viewers, it's that we ought to be galvanized by the fact that, as you say, David, there are people living within our country who live in some instances, something like third world conditions, whose economic and social outcomes diverge so significantly from national averages. This ought to be a, a, an area and a subject of, of mobilization and reform and ambition. And as you say, the risk of some of these developments, even if well-intended, if they stand in the way of that kind of uh, reformist streak, the risk, of course, is we threaten current generations and future generations of Indigenous people living in the same challenges as their predecessors. And that ought to be a national shame and a source of national embarrassment and hopefully an inspiration for different and better outcomes. That's beautifully said. And the only thing I would add is, and, and we should ask ourselves, what will the 2080s think of us? Uh, I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation. I want to thank you for uh, speaking with me on, about this important topic, David, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.